you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 2. It's our last sermon in our Advent series, A Hope for the Holidays. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew 2 and the story of the wise men. My title this morning is, And They Worshipped Him. This morning, my invitation is going to begin right here at the beginning. I would ask you to look at this text and ask yourself, do you see Jesus the way the characters in the text see Jesus? And so, I want to begin by reading the text, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump right in, because I don't want this to be really long, but I do want it to you to consider the claims of the text. This is what Matthew 2 says. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and, he is, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now I want to begin just with a little context, with, with, with speaking a little bit about the context of this, of this passage and the characters. Um, first, you should note that this is probably one to two years after Jesus' birth, as recorded in Luke's Gospel. I want you to notice that the wise men don't find Jesus lying in a manger in a stable, but in a home, according to verse 11. It says the child was in a home. There, were no, uh, there are no angels here announcing his birth. There are no shepherds in the field at this time, according to Matthew's account. Matthew also tells us that the wise men don't find a baby. The Greek word for that is brephos. They find a child, a pideon. And so there is, a, there is differences here between Luke's account, which focuses on the birth narrative, and then Matthew's account, which is most likely one to two years later. All right, second... It is critical to understand also the characters. That's the context. Now listen to the characters. Um, first, the first character mentioned here is in verse 2. This is Herod the Great. It says that the wise men came to Herod the Great, who was the son of Herod Antip Antipater. Now according to scholars, quote, Herod the Great was a half-Jew, half-Idumean, who through accommodation to the Romans ascended to power as a client ruler of Israel in 37 BC. He was known as a great builder of public works and a shrewd diplomat in his dealings with both Romans and Jews. He laid oppressive taxes 
um, on the Israelites and conscripted labor from them. And as he grew older, he became increasingly paranoid about threats against his person and throne. Herod the Great also had numerous sons and wives and others close to him that he put to death out of fear of plots to overthrow him. Now, Herod was a paranoid and power-hungry leader. From our recent trip to Israel, for those of us that went, you could tell from Herod's work on the temple, his work at Caesarea, his work at Herodium, and at Masada, that he was a very capable builder. But he was also a paranoid man. All of his life, he was paranoid that either the Jews or the Romans or even his own sons would eventually betray him and kill him. So that's Herod the Great. But now let's look at the Magi or the wise men that come to Herod. Now, according to scholars, the Magi were not kings. They were not kings, like we sing, We Three Kings. Don't let that trip you up. They're not kings, but a combination of wise men and priests, most likely from Persia or Babylon, they combined astronomical observation with astrological speculation. They played both political and religious roles and were figures of some prominence in their land. So despite our popular songs and nativity scenes, Matthew doesn't tell us that the Magi were kings or that there were even three of them. There might have been more. Okay, now this brings us to the third and most important character in our text, and that is the child, Jesus. You have Herod, a paranoid ruler. You have wise men who come from Persia or Babylon who are watching the skies, and you have this child, Jesus. Now this is no ordinary child. The Magi know this. Now notice a couple of things here that the Magi tell us as recorded by Matthew that are incredibly important. Notice first that the Magi come to Herod and they say this, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, unlike Herod, this is why this is important, unlike Herod who was appointed king by the Romans, this child has a legitimate claim to the throne of Israel by virtue of his birth. This child is a descendant of David from the tribe of Judah who are the ones who are to be kings of Israel. So this is, he is completely unlike Herod. The wise men basically confront Herod and tell him to his face that he is the illegitimate king of Israel. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Not appointed as a puppet king from Rome, the one who has been born king. That is a very important thing that they bring to the front, forefront here. That's something, by the way, that devout Jews knew all along. They knew Herod wasn't the legitimate king of Israel. He was a puppet of Rome. And so, but there's nothing they can do about it. In the face of imperial Rome, there's nothing that devout Jews can do. And, by the way, if Herod the Great was devoted to the Old Testament, as he claimed, he was he knew how to finagle his way around the religious elite of Israel. He claimed to have a miraculous conversion to Judaism, even though he's only half Jewish. If, if Herod was a devoted follower of the Old Testament and practiced Judaism, he should have rejoiced at this news. He should have rejoiced 
that the Messiah, the long-awaited promised coming king, had been born. But instead, when he hears this news, my translation says that Herod was disturbed. When Herod hears the news, he doesn't rejoice. He is disturbed. Now that does not give the full sense of the term in Greek. A better word would probably be that Herod was in great turmoil. He was terrified. Now this fits well with the history, with what history bears out about Herod. He doesn't rejoice. He trembles and he conspires. And if we keep reading Matthew's account in this chapter, we know just a few verses later that this terrified and paranoid king what he does to all of the little children in Bethlehem. It's a tragic story. Second, the wise men claim not only that this this child has been born king of the Jews, the wise men claim that this child's birth has been accompanied by heavenly signs. We have seen his star and we have come to find him. Now, The Magi watched the skies and held that the appearance of a star was a sign of the birth of someone great. They claimed in verse 2 that they have specifically seen this child's star rise. Now while those two things are incredible and worthy of the Magi's attention, that there's heavenly signs and a king that has been born, that there's a child who has been born king, not appointed king, It is the third thing here that stands out the most. Notice that throughout our text, twice it says that the wise men have come for a particular purpose. They have come to worship him. Now, it might stand out that there's there's someone who's been born king. That is great news. It might stand out that there's an astronomical sign in the heavens that there is a star that has appeared that lights the way to this child's birth, but what should stand out most to you is that the wise men have come to worship him. They have come to worship him. This isn't just a child. It isn't just a star in the sky. This isn't just another king. This is something altogether different. If the wise men simply wanted to worship a king, they're standing in front of one. His name is Herod. I don't see it recorded in the text that they bow down and offer their gifts to Herod. They're not here to worship Herod. No, they're here to find this child that is altogether different. And I would just say, if they wanted to worship Herod, he would be just fine with that. In fact, he would absolutely love it. That's what he lives for. Power, prestige, fear, and reverence. All of those words associated many times with worship. The Magi haven't simply come to pay homage to a king. They can do that with Herod. No, they have come in faith to worship. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. The question is why? Why? Why have these wise men made this, made this pilgrimage, traveled this distance to find a child in a modest, humble home with his mother who is a peasant, with no mention of Joseph here yet, many scholars think he might have already passed away, or he's just not here at this moment. Um, why, is, why have they come to worship? 
Sorry, I misspoke there. Joseph is very much alive. He's going he's to take them to, uh, to Egypt in just a minute. He's going to take them to Egypt, but we don't see Joseph after the flight to Egypt. Um, the question is why? Now, in my view, in my view, the Magi, the reason they come and the reason they're here to worship is because the Magi are familiar with the prophecies of the Old Testament. Specifically, the prophecies from the prophets during Israel's exile to Babylon. If you remember, God exiled Israel to Babylon, and during that time, he rose up prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, and they would probably have known or possibly even read passages from the prophets like this. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Or Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the Magi come knowing that this is what is happening. They have come to worship this child that has been born, this sign that has been given, this one particular child. So what's interesting as well is that Herod seems to be familiar with this and he even says that he will come and worship the child. Herod says, well, go, tell, go find the child. I'll come and worship too. But we know he's lying. The Magi, though, do come and worship this child. And the reason is that this child is Emmanuel, God with us. This child is human and yet divine. This is the only human being that has ever been worthy of worship because of who he is. Now listen, there have been many human beings worshipped throughout history and many are still worshipped today. But this is the only child that is, tr that is truly worthy of worship because he is God with us. He is the Son of God. And the Magi have come not to destroy him as Herod has, but to worship him. One commentator said it this way, quote, Is it not perfectly astonishing that men with so little to go on should venture so far, endure such hardships and travel, and face such uncertainties of finding the one the star beckoned? What is more, they wanted to give him costly gifts and the worship of their hearts. They even recognized him as king of the Jews, a title that contrasts strikingly with Herod's position, which does not recur in Matthew's gospel until Jesus' crucifixion. He says, Herod held jealously to his kingship by might of arms and by bitter repressive measures. And Jesus showed his kingship by self-sacrifice for others. At Calvary, he demonstrated that the weakness of God is more powerful than mere mortals. And the Magi seemed to have some thought of it. I find their faith, their insight, their wholehearted search and adoring worship utterly amazing. It is one of the many surprises in the gospel. But then again, God is the God of surprises. We find the Magi worshiping at the feet of a child, Jesus. And I want to close with the choice before us. Herod and the wise men in this text show us a great contrast in how people still perceive Jesus to this day. 
The rest of Jesus' ministry and the rest of history will bear this out. We have the choice each day to either recognize Him for who He is by faith, or we will see Jesus as a threat to our very existence, our very autonomy, and our very sin. And all of that is true. It was true for Herod and for the Magi and for every other person who encounters this Jesus. This, this child here is the great dividing line of all of human history. You must either worship Him or seek to be rid of Him altogether. There really is no in-between. But we all have to come to terms with it. And the gospel writers want us to come to terms with it. This is why they do not shy away from the rest of the story of the gospels, the rest of Jesus' life and ministry, by continuing to show us that Jesus is the Son of God who is worthy of worship. Just like the wise men, they have come to worship Him. Listen to what Matthew 13 says when Jesus bids Peter to come walk out on the sea. And it says, but the disciples saw him walking on the sea, and they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. They worshipped him. This isn't just a good teacher. This isn't just some rabbi following around in the countryside. This is the Son of God who is to be worshipped. The miracle of that story isn't that Jesus calmed the wind or the waves or that Peter walked on water. The miracle is the Son of God got in a boat with sinful human beings and they worshiped him. Listen to the next story when Jesus heals a blind man and they throw and the religious leaders are jealous and they throw him out of the synagogue. It says this in John 9. It says Jesus heard that they had cast the man out of the synagogue, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He worshipped him. Or after Jesus is crucified, and he appears to his disciples after the resurrection, in Matthew 28, it says, that the disciples departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples, um, that's the two ladies, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. And just a few verses later it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed him, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. In Luke 24, at the ascension, it says, And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him. This brings us to the famous C.S. Lewis trilemma, where he says that you cannot simply 
do away with this thought of Jesus. You must either think of him as a lunatic, a crazy person, a liar, he's leading the masses astray, or he's actually who he says he is, and he's Lord. But he can't just be some good moral teacher, because no good moral teacher goes around telling people that I am the Son of God and allows people to bow down at their feet and worship him, unless he really is Lord. And that is my question to you this morning. If Jesus is Lord, you don't respond like Herod. You respond like the wise man. You rejoice with exceeding great joy. You fall on your face and you worship Jesus. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. I'll close with this. He called, this is from his uh, little book, God is in the Manger, Reflections on Advent and Christmas, written mostly from prison before he's to be executed by Adolf Hitler. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this one's called The Power and Glory of the Manger. And this is what he says, reflecting on this truth of the wise men coming to worship. He says, For the great and powerful of the world, there were only two places in which their courage fails them, of which they are afraid deep down in their souls, from which they shy away. These two are the manger and the cross of Jesus Christ. No powerful person dares to approach the manger. And even this includes King Herod. For this is where thrones shake, the mighty fall, the prominent perish, because God is with the lowly. Here the rich come to nothing because God is with the poor and the hungry. But the rich and satisfied He sends away empty. Before Mary, the maid, before the manger of Christ, before God in lowliness, the powerful come to nothing. They have no right, no hope, and they are judged. Who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? And he says it's this one. Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger... Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high. Whoever looks at the child and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. You see, when we come to Jesus, even as a child, we get to see the face of God. Not high and mighty king over all, though it is true. He is low and humble, coming to his people Lowly, poor, in humility. Ready not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Not coming to demand all from everyone, though he can and will one day. But coming to serve and to give himself for all in lowliness and humility. This morning I ask you, do you come to Jesus this way, ready to lay down all at the foot of Christ? Or do you draw back in terror that this one who has come is a threat to your individualism, a threat to your autonomy, a threat to your sinful nature, a threat to all that you would cling to at the expense of coming.
Let us pray. Father, we ask today that you would speak to our hearts and you would draw near to us this Advent time as we celebrate the birth of this child who is also a king. Father, I pray today, if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus, that you would speak to their heart. And today would be the day that they come and kneel, laying aside all that they cling to and saying, give me Jesus. Father, we pray for others who, Father, who have been walking in waywardness and rebellion, that, Father, they would come and they would bend the knee and not in stubbornness refuse. Father, we ask that you would work repentance in us. Father, that we would come humbly before Christ to receive. Father, to give of all that we have before Him. We pray this in Christ's name.